So <clears throat> the other day, my whole family was driving in the car somewhere. I don't remember where. And we were telling our kids that two of them were born in the south, and then the other two were born in the north. We told them that the older two girls were South Carolinians, and that our older, uh, the younger two are Pennsylvanians. Um, and this really confused one of my girls, um, who piped up from the back. Wait, am I American? <laughs> I won't name the kid, because I want to embarrass her. Plus, I'd owe them a dollar. Um, which we, we don't want that this morning. If you're new to Trinity, I've made deals with my kids that if I name them from up here, they get a dollar from me. Okay, with inflation, it probably needs to be like five bucks at this point. But, um, so I'm not going to owe her a dollar. Uh, but we had to explain to her, yes, uh, you're an American because you were born in America, you were born to Americans, and you are living in America. Um, this threefold test answered her question. And all three had to be answered properly to answer her question fully. Wait, am I American? Um, This isn't too different from the question that John is helping us to answer this morning. Wait, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? That's been his like general purpose all along throughout this letter. You probably know this by now if you've been with us for the last few weeks. At the end of the letter, John tells us why he wrote the letter. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's letter is bent on providing us assurance of our belief. Today's text has a a nuance, though. Today, John is helping us think about how to fuel assurance in our hearts, especially when, when our assurance tanks are really low. Look at verse 19. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Look at verse 20. For whenever our hearts condemn us. So John wants to talk about the times that our hearts are lacking in assurance about our belief. When we need reassurance. And you'll want to tuck these truths away today for that time when you are lacking in assurance. John wants us to prepare for when our conscience sends us on a guilt trip. You see verse 20 there. John is concerned about what to do when our own hearts condemn us. He wants our confidence to be in the right place. And so he's providing some really practical tools for what to do in the dead of night when we're really struggling and wrestling with doubts about our salvation. You can see this particularly in the bookends of our text this morning. Look at uh, verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. And look at verse 24, the second half. By this we know that he abides in us. John wants us to know that we know that we know that we have believed and that this belief has transformed our now story and our forever story. Like the threefold test to determine whether or not we're American, John gives us a three-step test for our consciences to consider too. Am I really a Christian? All three things have to be true of us simultaneously for us to have maximum confidence. And conveniently, each one of these tests is directly tied to one of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's going to sort of inspire our big idea for this morning. A big idea is like the main thing from this text that you can take away that is portable for you to take home with you, um, that is hopefully memorable and will stick with you, at least until after lunch. Uh, Here's the big idea. When your conscience sends you on a guilt trip, Exchange fickle self-assurance 
For faithful, our hearts are fickle, church. About 100 years ago, a man named John Murray said this, The faith and love of the believer have their ebb and flow. They are subject to all sorts of fluctuation, but the security of the believer rests in the faithfulness of God. It is upon the determinateness and stability of God's gifts that our hearts must rest if we are not to be driven about by the fluctuating tempers or temperatures of our own experience. Now listen, your conscience may have rightly sent you tripping because of some sin that you have been engaged with and refused to repent of. Or you may have experienced some other times in your life when your conscience is tripping and there's no identifiable reason. You're just like you're struggling with anxiety or depression and you're wondering, what could I be thinking and acting in the ways that I am and still claim to be a Christian? Such a hypocrite. Am I really a Christian? Today, John wants to help us prepare for that day when we're struggling like that. In short, he wants you, he wants us to preach truth to your heart not listen to your heart. Preach to your heart. Don't listen to it. Verse 20 tells us that when our hearts are wilting under the burden of shame, God is greater than our hearts. But how do we channel that greatness to overcome our doubts? How do we channel God's greatness that is greater than our hearts to overcome our doubts? Here's how. Preach God's great truth to your feeble heart instead of listening to it. Preach God's great truth. We're all preachers this morning. We're all going to preach to our hearts. Paul Tripp says that no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. So when doubts come, we need to learn to talk back to them instead of listening to them. And we need to learn what to say when we talk back to them. Look, the reality is that the scriptures teach us that it is probable that true Christians are really going to have doubts about their own salvation from time to time. And so John prods us toward three things when our hearts condemn us. Obeying the Father, believing the Son, and relying on the Spirit to obey and believe. Relying on the Spirit to do one and two. So when we are awash in guilt, drowning in doubts or shame, each one of the members of the Trinity will pay play a pivotal role in refueling our confidence tanks. So first this morning, fuel your confidence by obeying the Father's commands. Fuel your confidence by obeying the Father's commands. And there are three specific commands here found in verses 22 and 23. It's basically what you see on screen there. Do what pleases God, believe in the Son of God, love the people of God. That is what is called of us here in this text. If this is your heartbeat, you should find a sense of comfort in that reality. That's a good sign, John says. It's the first of a few necessary good signs when we are doubting our status with God. When we pose the question, am I a Christian? This should be one of the things that we check on first. Do you obey perfectly? No, not a chance, obviously. But do you really love God and do you want to obey him? If so, be encouraged by that. Your heart is condemning you. Throughout this letter, John has employed in order to uh, particular commands that he employs again here today in our text. And I think we should pay attention to the order. Last week, he saw, we saw this in verse 16. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to do the same thing. We ought to lay our lives down for the brothers and sisters. So we're to model our love after God's love. 
there's a similar order this week too. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and then love one another, like in the same way. We get the command to believe Jesus before the call to love each other like Jesus. Jesus' love is our model, and it's also our motivation to love each other well. I guess I'm going to break my rule and name one of my kids here this morning. Ellie, remind me, I owe you a dollar. She had a birthday a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so I took the other three girls out to get them, to get her some world-class presents from Five Below, of course. Um, they took my money and bought presents that would come from them for their sister, okay? That's some kind of deal when you get to buy presents for someone else with someone else's money. Um, ironically, they had to receive from me in order to give to their sister. Had they not received from me, they had no hope of giving to their sister. Uh, all of their bank accounts are five and below, so, which, which meant that they had not enough money to purchase the gifts. Um, they didn't have the means to buy the gift. It's not much different for you and Jesus. You've got to go to him, you've got to receive from him, and give out of the wealth of his strength and his grace and his love. You don't have the means to love like Jesus unless you first go and receive love from Jesus. You and I will only be able to love just as he loved by spending time with Jesus and being served by Jesus. If you don't view yourself first as a recipient, you must be served that you might serve. When Jesus fills our tanks full of his love, he says, go spend that love on my people. Listen to these really sobering words from a man named Francis Schaeffer. He says, Jesus says, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are truly Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come up to us and judge that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. And we must not get angry. If people say, you don't love other Christians, we must go home, get down on our knees and ask God whether or not they are right. Does your little corner of your little world know that you follow Jesus because of your love for his people? Loving this little crew in here is one of the most missional things you can do in this world. Eating together, laughing together, praying together, weeping together. This is the real stuff of real love. And Jesus says it's missionary work. Loving each other is the way the world will know that we follow the one true God. So in our little faith community here, who are you loving as Jesus has loved you, laying down his life for you? Now, last week, we got way into the weeds on specific ways that we can and should be looking to love one another. 
We won't rehash all of those this week. If you want, you can go back and review that sermon to come up with some specific ways that you can love the people here in our church. But John says our confidence can be fueled by taking stock of our obedience to the Father, particularly if we obey his word and love his people. But listen, if our confidence is only drawn from our obedience, what do we do in the wake of disobedience? Should every sin send us reeling into a doubtful downward spiral? If the only fuel available for our confidence is the performance of our obedience, then our confidence muscles are going to be very feeble. That's why verse 23 exists. Look at verse 23. And this is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So this leads us to our second confidence booster. Fuel your confidence by believing in the throes of temptation. When we are in the wake of falling prey to temptation, and we are reeling from the shame of that, we need something to reassure our hearts, John says. There's just so much variance in your heart in those moments. So John is trying to give us something like sturdy and and unchanging to cling to. Here's how we reassure our hearts when our hearts are wilting. Verse 23, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So what does believing in his name mean? It means believing all the hype about Jesus. That he is the redeemer who was prophesied about for thousands of years before he ever, ever even set foot on the earth. That he is who he claims to be. The son of God come to take on the penalty for the sins of the world. That he has done what he claimed to do pay for the sins of mankind in a brutally violent crucifixion and then rise in victory over sin and death itself. If you go anywhere other than that Jesus despair, if you go anywhere other than this Jesus, you will come face to face with your own insufficiency rather than Jesus' all-glorious sufficiency. It is only what our minds know of the Son of God that can settle our heart's fear of the wrath of God when we lack confidence about how we are relating to God. We must remind ourselves of what we know to be true about the Son of God. I've learned to do this sort of exercise from from men like Jerry Bridges and Jared Wilson, but I want you to imagine yourself in the dead of night, tossing and turning in your bed, unable to sleep, and so processing through your latest failure as a boss, as a parent, as a leader, as a spouse, as an elder, as a deacon, as an employee, as a girlfriend, as a boyfriend. You're processing through your failure. And now imagine Jesus knows exactly the nature of your failure. The precise moment when you crossed over that threshold into sin and you knew it. He does know. That's what verse 20 says. Look at it. It says, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. Oof. That in and of itself is troubling news. God knows everything. So what do you do when you're just awash in shame? What do you do when you realize that you have just laid into a spouse in a way that belittles them and makes them feel so small. 
And for a long time, you felt good about it. It was warranted. It felt right. But you're seeing it clearly now. And you're just wallowing in the depths of despair. What do you do? What do you do when you've screamed at a six-year-old at the very top of your lungs for something that doesn't even matter? What do you do when you've crossed a line with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you know it? What do you do when you have clicked that link that degrades a total stranger into an empty vessel for your pleasure? What do you do? What do you do in the dead of night when your past is marred by an abortion or two and you're up wondering what that little one may have turned into if you'd just given them a chance? What, what do we do in these moments? This is what 1 John 3 is all about. You've got to know that in those moments, God's grace is greater than your heart's condemnation. So imagine with me, you're on that bed and you're tossing and turning. You're musing on the mess that your sinful choices have made. And you see the door crack open to your room ever so slightly. And and the nightlight from the hallway just begins to spill into your room. You can see it cast on to a face. And it's Jesus' face. And he's moving towards you. What do you imagine his countenance to be as he draws near? What's the look on his face in the glow of that light in the wake of your self-condemnation? Probably rightful self-condemnation. Do you see the disappointed gaze of a taskmaster condescending, tut-tutting, head-shaking, disappointment? Or do you see grace? Do you see a smile? If you believe in the name of Jesus, you ought to see a smile. You ought to see grace. In the middle of a scrappy battle in our shifting hearts, I think we miss the transcendent glory from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. This is what you must preach to your heart instead of listening to your heart. Look, this is not a license to sin, and we'll cover this well for us earlier in chapter 3. Look at verse 6. No one who abides sinning is of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's kindness is not meant to create a license for your sin. No, it's meant to draw us into repentance. Romans 2. God's kindness is meant to lead you into repentance. But at the same time, the reality is that we are sinners, and we do fail. But this is the most scandalous truth in all of the galaxy right now in this very moment. God knows the real you and me. And yet we are accepted because of Jesus. Hallelujah. This is the nub of the gospel. Gospel equals acceptance with God only because of Jesus. Here's an extended quote from Jerry Bridges, but it was just too rich to cut anything out. Um, So here we go. He says, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. And because they do not fully understand the riches and glory of the gospel, they cannot preach it to themselves, not live by it in their daily lives. In other words, uh, he's saying that we end up teaching people just enough gospel to get saved But then move on to other things. And Bridges wants us to understand that we never move on from the gospel. Never. To continue the quote, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. 
It means that you appropriate, again by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed at you. See a smile. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, 7, and 8. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It means that you believe on the testimony of God, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. It means that you believe Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It means you believe that he forgave you all your sins and now presents you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It is the death of Christ through which he satisfied the justice of God and averted from us the wrath of God that is the basis of all God's promises of forgiveness. This is what John means when he says that in order to fuel confidence that we are truly in the family of God, we must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Preaching the gospel to our hearts is the answer to the doubts and fears in our hearts. Do my sins condemn me? Jesus has covered them in his blood. Do my works fall short? Jesus' righteousness is counted as mine. I'm not saying there won't be consequences for our sin. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work our tails off to slay our sin. I'm saying one way to war against our sin and to war against doubt is to preach the gospel to ourselves. There is no condemnation, not for those who have believed in the name of the Son of God. Christians, don't condemn yourself for what God has forgiven. Scandalous words right there. God the Father would no more reject you than he would reject his own son. We sing that lyric, the Father turns his face away in how deep the Father's love. It's a uh, reference to the last moments of Jesus on the cross. This is Matthew 27, 46. It says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsakes his Son. He, he turns his face away. What did the Father's face turn to? It turned to you, and it turned to me. He couldn't stand to look at Jesus because Jesus was marinating in our sin. But then he couldn't help but look at us because we were basking in Jesus' righteousness. Because of Jesus, it's not a stretch to say that you deserve entrance into the kingdom of God, that you, you have every right to pull up a chair at this table and enjoy a meal with the Father. The strong and perfect plea. Your heart is prone to wander. Don't you feel it? Prone to leave the God you love? Don't trust your heart then. It's fickle. Look, feelings come and feelings go. We feel good, we feel bad. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Don't draw your confidence from your fickle feelings or you'll be all over the place. Like a, a boat on the waves driven with the wind and tossed. Don't draw confidence from your feelings. Draw confidence from the facts of your faith. When your heart is ashamed, believe in the name of Jesus Christ afresh and preach his gospel to your fainting heart. And finally today, fuel your confidence by relying on the Spirit's help. Almost every time I meet a guest that comes here on Sunday, I ask them how they heard about us, 
Um, and then I ask if they live in the area, and then I ask if they have any friends in the church or whatever, you know, small talk. But inevitably, the conversation almost always turns to, and what do you do for a living? Well, if the Holy Spirit strolled through our doors this morning, and you were meeting him for the first time, you might ask him how he heard about Trinity. Hopefully, he'd say something like, oh, I heard about you guys from the Father. He speaks highly of you guys. And then you might ask him where he's from. You'd find out he's not all that local. Um, in the same sense, he's very local. Um, and then you might ask him, well, what do you do? Now, there's a bunch of ways that the Spirit could answer this question. But I think it's quite possible that he might just grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you and turn right here to this text in 1 John 3 and say, look, just read verse 24. This is not my exhaustive resume, but it gives you a, a, a pretty good sense for a pretty good portion of my job. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. In other words, relying on the spirit's abiding presence helps us keep obeying the father's commands, which fuels confidence in our fickle hearts. Now, it's hard to imagine a subject that has been more divisive and confusing in the church than the subject of the Holy Spirit. I will grant you that. If you YouTube, I would not recommend this, but if you YouTube the works of the Holy Spirit, you'll get a whole range of ludicrous, I promise. And it all gets blamed on the Holy Spirit, like with a straight face, holy laughter, holy howling. At the same time, how do we know whether or not behavior is from the Spirit or not? Like, what is, what is the test for that? Maybe you've assumed that to be filled with the Spirit is to spend your days filled with, like, supernatural impulses, maybe even like mystical whispers in your ear. Something like while you're driving, you might hear a voice say, turn left, turn right, drive two blocks, stop your car, go into Yum Yum Donuts, <laughs> get one dozen white lightnings, get back in your car, drive to Abington, drop them off at the Hearst residence, 2731 Susquehanna Road. <laughs> Something spooky like that. We tend to think of, like, the Spirit working in mystical ways like that. But then you have folks who see that kind of, like, belief or that kind of behavior and, like, uh-uh, no thanks, I don't want that. But, like, obviously, I don't want to abuse the teaching about the Holy Spirit. But I think sometimes, you know, we swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum and we basically act like the Holy Spirit isn't a thing at all. I think some of us end up functioning more like binatarians, by bi like two, father and son, Instead of Trinitarians, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're functional binatarians rather than Trinitarians. Like you are down with the Father, you are down with the Son, but really you have no idea what to do with the Spirit. And so we kind of lop him off our Christian experience. Maybe you act as if you could go on with, oh, we need the Spirit. But for what exactly? We touched on one aspect back in chapter 2, 1 John 2, 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So we learned that the Holy One is Jesus, and that this anointing is the Spirit. So every believer that comes into contact with Jesus by faith, it is as if the oil of the Holy Spirit rubs off on us, as it were. And what does that matter? What is the effect of Jesus anointing us with his Spirit? Well, according to that verse 20 there, the effect is that we know something. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So our knowing God's truth is the result of our anointing from God's Spirit. 
What is plain here is that without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know the truth. Knowing the truth about Jesus is a gift from the Holy Spirit. If you know and believe Jesus, it's not because you're smarter than the next guy. No, it is the gift of God by his Spirit. You can't boast in any of your knowledge. But we need to combine that reality together with what we see here in verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit that he has given us. So if we kind of smash these two concepts together from chapter 2 and then chapter 3, here's what we get. The Holy Spirit helps us know truth and keep on living the truth. Helps us know truth and live truth. Head to hands. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God. And this reality is tied directly to the Spirit's abiding presence in our lives. But if we, like, ignore the Spirit, we ignore a cosmic power source that can help us obey and so fuel our confidence. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit, church. The Holy Spirit fills the sails of our gospel ships with the winds of confidence through empowered obedience. And he does this through sustaining our trust in Jesus. And he does this by helping us to love Jesus' people. John Stott said, The Spirit, whose presence is a test of Christ's conduct, It's not just spooky, it's objective. It's not just subjective, it's objective. It is he who inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. And also he who empowers us to live righteously and to love our brothers and sisters. So if we would set our hearts at rest, when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working, and particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers and sisters. The Spirit is your only hope at finding perspective, a, like a truth perspective when we are in the fog of war as Christians. You need the Spirit so bad. I mean, you've scrolled through social media recently. You've flipped on the news or you've talked with coworkers. Knowing right from wrong is like totally up for grabs right now. What's up? What is down? The thing that was once celebrated is now condemned, and the thing that was once condemned is now celebrated. Who knows? What is right? You need a truth perspective, and your only reliable source for that is through the Spirit, through the words that he inspired in this book so long ago. Press into this, people. The Spirit is God's gift to you, so you can know exactly what is good and what is right. Pray specifically to the Spirit. Ask the Spirit for help. The Spirit is not an add-on. The Spirit isn't like take it or leave it. The Holy Spirit is not the third wheel of the Trinity and the spooky thing that the church keeps on the shelf in the doctrinal statement. No, the Spirit is the lifeblood of our faith. And it is He who supplies confidence when our hearts are wilting. So all of these confident tank, confidence tanks this morning so that when our conscience takes us on a guilt trip, we can talk right back to our hearts and say, uh-uh, this is what God says, heart. You shut up. Sorry, kids. Um, you shut up and listen, fainting heart of mine. Listen as I preach this truth to you. Am I really a Christian? Why, yes, I am. But not because of how I feel. I'm a Christian based on the facts, 
that I obey the Father, even if imperfectly. I trust in Jesus Christ alone in my place. And the Spirit empowers my faith and obedience. When your conscience sends you on a guilt trip, exchange fickle self-assurance for faithful Trinitarian assurance. Kate is going to come up and pray these truths into our lives now. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that just pours out from it. We thank you for, um, for your faithful work through um, the preaching of your word to do work in our hearts and in our lives. And um, we thank you for First John, and we pray that we would do the things that Josh has laid out for us. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would fuel our confidence by us obeying the Father's commands. We pray that you would fuel our confidence by helping us to believe in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would fuel our confidence by helping us to rely on the Spirit's help. Um, I'm so encouraged, Lord, to know that your Spirit helps us to believe in Christ. Your Spirit enables us to follow your commands, and your Spirit helps us to love the brothers and sisters. Um, we look to you, Jesus, because you are perfect, because your righteousness is ours. Who are we to claim that? Um, but we say thank you, and we are grateful, Lord, for all that you've done for us and for your loving kindness. Amen. Death. If so, come enjoy a meal with the Father this morning, uh, a table at...